Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at GodSolutionShow.com. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst. I'm Grant Persett. And we're excited to be concluding with the second part of our interview with Dr. Tim McGrew today. Dr. Tim McGrew is the professor and chair of the Department of Philosophy at Western Michigan University, as well as a world-renowned Christian apologist. We'll be talking this week about reasons to trust the Bible, specifically undesigned coincidences in the New Testament. Here we are picking up with the second part of our interview with Dr. McGrew. Dr. McGrew, let me switch gears on you if I could, and I want to ask why can we trust the New Testament now? Right, so what we're doing here is moving from the first of those categories I mentioned. We can look at the universe, it bears the fingerprints of the Creator, to the second, God has revealed Himself in history. And so in moving into that, we come into a realm where we're using a different kind of evidence. We're making, I think, some of the same moves intellectually. We're still looking at things and trying to explain them. But we have this evidence, uh, most abundantly in the New Testament, regarding Jesus of Nazareth, what he said, what he did, and the crowning fact of the New Testament, which is just written across nearly every page, his resurrection from the dead. And so that naturally raises the question, why should we believe this old historical document? There are lots of old historical documents that we believe only in part, and then there are other old historical documents that we don't believe at all. So why should we stake our lives on this one rather than on that one? And the answer, in in very brief terms, is there's a lot of good evidence for its historical reliability. And I would break that evidence up very broadly again into two categories. I would say there's external evidence. Um, Maybe the simplest way to put that is we now know from things outside of the New Testament that the authors of these books get hard things right. Not just general facts that would be common knowledge, but tons of little details. And then there's the category of internal evidence. The books of the New Testament interlock with one another, and they explain one another. And maybe the best illustration of that, though not the only one, would be the argument from undesigned coincidences. Now, that's the next question. Before we jump into undesigned coincidences, can you please explain the concept briefly uh, for our audience, in case anyone's not familiar with that concept? Sure. It's an old concept. It was first raised by William Paley in one of his books written at the very end of the 18th century, and it's been developed uh, through the 19th century and then largely forgotten in the 20th century, and so there's a bit of a revival of it going on now. What's an undesigned coincidence? Well, here's maybe a way to illustrate it. Sometimes you'll be reading one book, and as you're reading the book, something in it will raise a natural question in your mind, and it's not answered in that book. You can't find the answer to your question. You can't get your curiosity resolved. But as you pick up a different book that in some way intersects with the 
setting or the scene or the people in the first one, in passing, your question gets answered. I like to think of that as two puzzle pieces interlocking. They're not identical to one another. This isn't just one book says something and the other book says the same thing in the same words. Then one of the authors could have just been copying from the other. But they, they link into one another, and that provides some confirmation for both of them. Now, maybe just one of them could be shrugged off. You could say, okay, well, there's one little linkage, but that could just be chance. Just like you could take two puzzle pieces and say, well, they're kind of the same color and they sort of fit together. I think maybe they go together, but you could be wrong. That could just be by chance. But, you know, when you begin assembling that jigsaw puzzle and you've got the puppy's nose and his eye and part of his ear assembled, and then somebody comes along and says, those pieces don't fit together like that. They don't belong to the same puzzle at all. You're not going to listen to him. It's like that with undesigned coincidences. These linkings have a cumulative effect, and when you see not just one stray one here or there, but multiple links like that coming together, all pointing to the same kind of picture that they're building up of the life and times of Jesus, for example, or the travels of the Apostle Paul, then you reach the point where you say, okay, this is not chance. These are people who are close up to the facts, and they are habitually truthful. So now, would you be willing to elaborate on some internal undesigned coincidences? Sure. Let me, let me just get, start with a simple example. In Matthew 14, we have the story of the death of John the Baptist, and this story is narrated elsewhere. You can find it in Mark, for example. But Matthew has a phrase that nobody else uses, none of the other Gospel writers use. It starts with the news that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in the Jordan, and Herod Antipas, who is the Tetrarch in the region of Galilee, freaks out because he's had John, who was baptizing in the Jordan, beheaded. And now he's wondering if this is John come back from the dead. So in Matthew, we read that Herod said to his servants, what's going on with this? Um, is this John the Baptist come back to life or something? But I'm interested in just three words there, to his servants. Here's the question, natural question that arises in my mind as I'm reading that. Herod Antipas is a member of the elite, the top 2 or 3% of the people in the populace. How should a bunch of Galilean peasants following this rabbi Yeshua around, know what Herod is saying to his servants, presumably in the privacy of his own palace. You can read all through Matthew. You will not get even a hint of an answer to that question. It's nothing. Now, you know how a skeptic is going to spin it, right? Well, I'll tell you why. He doesn't have any idea because... He doesn't need to. Uh, you know, the, Matthew's not getting this information from somewhere. He's writing a novel. He's making it up. And maybe we couldn't find a great answer to that question. And that might be okay. There are a lot of things in history where we'd like an answer, but we're not entitled to demand it. So we're just lucky if we can get it. But wouldn't it be more satisfying if we did have an answer? If you... Go over to the Gospel of Luke. 
there's a passage that is not about the death of John the Baptist at all. It's just a list of women who helped Jesus and his disciples, these unworldly guys. They didn't know where their next meal was coming from. They didn't know where they were going to sleep. And these women provided probably financial and material assistance for them. So Luke chapter 8, verse 3, names one of the women. Her name is Joanna. Not a major character. And then it gives this little parenthetical description of her. The wife of Husa. All right. Who's Husa? Herod's steward. His household manager. And suddenly the whole thing becomes clear. Jesus' followers have family in the highest ranks of Herod's servants. Now it's no mystery at all how word could get back to somebody like Matthew, a tax collector turned traveling preacher, about what Herod had said to his servants. Now, that one I like because it's so simple, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. You realize, oh, right, that does make it perfectly natural, whether it was Husa himself, or maybe there were other servants like that. But now that we know that the Christians had an inn in the palace of Herod, now a bunch of things become much clearer, and this is one of them. So that's an example of one way that the Gospels interlock with one another. And I I want to stress something that uh, is, is maybe not often said in this connection. The connections go every direction. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three, explain things in John, the fourth Gospel. But there are things in John that explain things in the Synoptic Gospels. And the Synoptic Gospels explain one another. There are connections between almost every one of Paul's letters and the book of Acts. These connections go all directions, crisscrossing the text. That gives them the ring of truth. That's exciting. You know, I have a question that just comes to mind. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who you've dealt with before, (laughs) uh, claims that he left the faith. Well, he claims a few different reasons. Of course, you know, in uh, God's problem, he's going to talk about the problem of pain, which I think might be the real reason that he uh, struggled with uh, believing in God. But he also claims that this issue, this this supposed discrepancy between the synoptics and John over the Passover meal. In John, you know, the, the religious authorities wanted to get done with the execution so that they could eat the Passover. And in the synoptics, Jesus had it with his disciples. There are good answers to that question. I've heard several. You know, some people said that the Galileans celebrated a day earlier. And, you know, they're different. You know, maybe the priests were talking about a priestly meal also called the Passover. Whatever the case, do you think there's any kind of undesigned coincidence between the two that that might explain that? Actually, there are both good direct answers to that criticism and undesigned coincidences. Here's one that I like. There's a claim that the, the meal in John chapter 13 is not the Passover meal. But Actually, I think that that claim can be decisively undermined. So if you look at John chapter 13, um, something really interesting happens if you connect that with Luke 22. We have the story of the Last Supper. And it's real explicit. Verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And they are told to prepare for the Passover. And they go in for a meal, and uh, Jesus says, 
Um, who is greater, the one who is at the table, that is, sitting there eating, or the one who serves? Well, obviously, it's the one who's at the table. That's the master. The servant is the person who's bringing the food. But I am among you, says Jesus, as one who serves. So this is Luke chapter 22, verse 27. Now, here's the question. What is there in Luke's description of the Last Supper, or in Matthew's, or in Mark's, that makes sense of this? Jesus is clearly the rabbi. He's the master. So... How shall we make sense of the notion that he's the one who serves? What is he doing that is serving? Now, a problem some of us have is that we've read our Bibles so many times that we sort of blend the Gospels together. We forget what's unique about them. John chapter 13 tells us that after supper, Jesus rose and set aside his garments and girt himself like a servant and washed the feet of the disciples. There is somebody who is among them as one who serves. Now that connection suggests that the event John is describing is the same supper that Luke is describing, even though Luke doesn't describe Jesus' act of washing the disciples' feet. He says something that makes sense only if he's done something like that. And so John provides us with the event to which Jesus is referring in Luke even though we can't find that event in Luke's narrative. All narratives, all historical narratives, pick and choose. None of them is a comprehensive record of the event. We can't, we can't do that. Nobody writes history that way. Nobody ever did. Um, but there's, this one's a twofer. This one goes the other direction as well. In John 13, why did Jesus rise after supper and wash the disciples' feet? What was the lesson? It was a lesson in humility. But there's no particular reason, as you're reading along in John 12, why the disciples should require a lesson in humility. However, if you look at the background in Luke, you find that just as they are coming in for this meal, they are bickering among one another as to who will be the greatest uh, there's doing this thing again that Jesus is having multiple times in the Gospels to call them out for, which is trying to one-up one another. And that calls for the lesson in servanthood. But John doesn't tell you why Jesus does it. And Luke doesn't tell you what Jesus is referring to. You need each of them to explain the other. Dr. McGree, you mentioned just a little earlier that the synoptic Gospels explain John, John explains the synoptics, they explain each other, they're woven together with Paul's letters, and the thought just kind of hit me, what about the Gnostic Gospels? Would you have an argument to say that there's not these undesigned coincidences woven in with those? Or I think that would be an interesting argument. I would not make that the only argument. Sure. Um, the, the criteria for canonicity always involved apostolic authority, either an apostle as an author or an apostle's seal of approval by close association with the person who was the author. So I, I would not make the lack of them decisive, but I will say this, both for external and for internal evidence, uh, the contrast could scarcely be greater. Take, for example, something which the Jesus Seminar people have now, and this is 
bordering on blasphemous. It's pretty ridiculous. Bound together with the Gospels, the, the four Gospels, they've put a couple, copy of the Gospel of Thomas. <laughs> the Gospel of Thomas is a sayings work. That is, it reads monotonously, Jesus said this. Jesus said that. Peter asked Jesus this question. Jesus replied that. On and on it goes. And not only is there no historical texture, nothing like a reference to Herod Antipas's servants or to Jesus being among them as one who serves. No, no narrative structure at all. Um, there's scarcely any reference even to geography. So, for example, you have to go about halfway through the Gospel of Thomas before you get a single reference to a place, any place, any place at all. And when you do, the place is Judea. A Samaritan was carrying a lamb to Judea. It is so nonspecific as almost to be laughable. And then you pick up any of the Gospels and you look at the wealth of, of the historical detail and the and the uh, the places, um, say take the Gospel of John. Um, John is baptizing in uh, uh, oh golly, where's the uh, Bethany by the Jordan? Bethany by the Jordan, right? Notice not just Bethany, but a different Bethany from the one you might have thought of, and so it gets a different name, mm-hmm. right? And all of these little notes of time, read through the Gospel of John with a pencil in your hand, and mark every time that it says, and two days later, or it was about this time of afternoon, uh, or even the little note when Judas goes out to betray Jesus, and John just says, and it was dark. Right, they're in an upper room. It's all closed off. Judas opens the door to leave, and that oblong of blackness stamps itself on John's memory. And when he writes it down, he just says, "And it was dark." All these little notes of specificity in time. There's nothing like that. There's none of the notes of specificity in geography. There's just no real narrative framework for these things, or. When one is invented, it's just laughably out of touch with what's actually the case, geographically, historically, uh, with what's chronologically possible. Contrast that with the book of Acts, where as the Apostle Paul is making his way across Asia Minor, it names different cities in which he stayed. And we now know where those cities are. They're about one day's foot travel apart from one another. Little details like that, they add up. Uh, this is not like saying, well, the Spider-Man comic books named New York City, and that doesn't mean that everything that happened to Spider-Man was real. Yeah, okay, but we are not talking about something on that level of generality. We are talking about a very specific kind of historical writing and lots of details that would be hard to get right if you didn't have Google or Wikipedia. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution. You can go to godsolutionshow.com for more on The God Solution. So we've talked about a few of the undesigned coincidences within the New Testament, and uh, that's compelling evidence for the reliability of the New Testament. But what about those that are uh, even outside of the New Testament, so things from history that might uh, shed light on things in the New Testament? Do you have any examples of those? 
Yeah, I've got, I've got lots. I usually don't use the word undesigned coincidences to describe them just for historical reasons. That's usually used for internal. But you're right that it is the same kind of reasoning just applied to a text that doesn't happen to be in our Bible. So let's take, uh, oh, I'll take a couple from Matthew. Matthew chapter 27. In the middle of the trial of Jesus, a message comes to Pontius Pilate from his wife. And she says, have nothing to do with this man. I've suffered much for... And, and, and Pilate, you know, probably rolls his eyes and says, oh, brother, my wife. But here's a funny thing. Um, the Emperor Augustus had forbidden governors to have their wives with them when they were governing out in the colonies. So what is Pontius Pilate's wife doing there? Isn't that... Has Matthew slipped? Has the novelist made a mistake so that we could see where he made an error? Well, it turns out that we have more data on this, and that was the law. But in the reign of Tiberius, and that's the guy who's on the throne in the period we're concerned with, the one following Augustus, um, in the reign of Tiberius, that law was just quietly left unobserved. And in fact... Somebody actually made a motion in the Roman Senate to start enforcing that law, and he got voted down. So there's just a little mark of authenticity there, a little bit of specificity where you might have wondered, whoops, did Matthew goof? Nope, actually, that's very much true to the time. Um, here's another one from Matthew chapter 2. Joseph has taken Mary and Jesus and fled to Egypt because Herod the Great, Herod the, the baby killer, is slaughtering children in Bethlehem, and then he hears that Herod is dead. So they start on the road back up to Judea. Now, Herod was a client king of the Romans, and so he would be expected to have put his oldest son in charge of a good piece, at least, of his kingdom. But we read in Matthew that when he heard Archelaus was reigning in his father's place in Judea, he was afraid. So this is weird. You should have known that Archelaus, the oldest living son, was going to get some part of his father's kingdom. You were headed up there because you knew his father was dead, so you could have pretty well guessed that Archelaus might be on the throne. Now you hear it, and suddenly it's freaking you out. What is going on with that? It's the only time Archelaus is ever mentioned in the New Testament. But if you go to the Jewish first century historian Josephus in his Antiquities of the Jews, Book 17, Josephus tells you the backstory. Um, when Herod the Great died, it was just before Passover. Archelaus came into power, and because Herod the Great had just had some Jews executed, uh, things were uneasy. People were unhappy with that act, that last act of his father. And at Passover time, Hundreds of thousands of Jews came into Jerusalem. Josephus actually says three million every year. But let's suppose he's exaggerating. 300,000 would still be a lot of Jews. The story went round of how Herod had had these two men burned alive, and the pilgrims were not pleased. A big group of Passover pilgrims got into an argument with a small group of Roman soldiers. The pilgrims set down their sacrifices, picked up stones, and stoned the soldiers. Most of the soldiers died. And then... They, the Jews picked up their sacrifices and ran into the temple. Like, who? What? Me? Ha ha, I'm on base. Can't touch me. Archelaus panicked. He figured that if this got out of hand, the Romans were not going to let him have this part of his father's kingdom. So he sent out a troop of horsemen, 
said to them, don't let anybody inside the temple go out. Don't let anybody outside come in. And then he went directly, he had them go directly into the temple and slaughter 3,000 Jews there. He told the Jews, go home. Now go back and reread Matthew chapter 2. And he hears that Archelaus is reigning in his father's place. Oh, that's not all he heard, <laughs> right? He heard from Passover pilgrims fleeing Judea saying, Archelaus has taken over, and his first act was to slaughter 3,000 Jews. And Joseph is not a low-watt bulb. He thinks, I left the environment of Jerusalem not long ago uh, to avoid a homicidal maniac on the throne. And now I'm headed there, and there's a brand-new homicidal maniac on the throne. You know what? Up north in Galilee, I have some property, and Galilee is under the control of Archelaus' younger brother, who does not have Jewish blood on his hands. And now Joseph's decision to turn aside and go to Galilee makes absolute sense. But we need that extra bit of extra-biblical information in order to see how it all comes together. There are things like this in all of the Gospels, and there are many things like this in the book of Acts, which takes place across such a wide surface area of the uh, Roman world. So there are just many, many external confirmations of that kind. These are amazing examples. So um, I'd like to finish off by asking you, um, how are these examples, internal and external, how do they build a case for the reliability of the New Testament? Well, they build a case the same way that they would in any other document if it weren't religious. right? If I'm reading about the Battle of Midway in World War II, and in the account of a Japanese general, I read that at a certain point he and his men on the ship saw one guy in a boat out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I say, what? <laughs> That's really weird. Then I read the story of an American pilot who says that his plane was so badly shot up that he had to bail out and deploy his life raft. Oh, I get it. And then we say both authors receive some credit from the interconnection, the accidental interconnection of their narratives. It's the same way here, or it would be, unless we applied a double standard. And that's really the fundamental thing that I want to say to anyone who starts researching this historically. No double standards. If you research this the way that you would look into any other historical event, and you do it right, you will come away with just an overwhelming amount of evidence for the historical trustworthiness of these documents. Well, Dr. McGrew, it's been great having you on the show, and I am uh, so thankful for your work in philosophy and apologetics. I know that it's helping guys like Grant and I and people like us defend our faith. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. Glad to do it. Uh, any last words for the audience as we wrap up the show? I guess I'd say this. A lot of people would like to be able to give a reason for what they believe, but they're not sure how to start, how to get into it. And I'd just like to say, do it the same way that you would set about getting in better shape or losing weight. Start today. Start with something. There are so many good books out there. There are recent books by people like my wife, Lydia, by Jay Warner Wallace, by Frank Turek, by Abdu Murray, uh, so many good authors out there. And then there are classic works out there as well. I, I run the Library of Historical Apologetics. You can look some things up there for free on the web. There are great videos. There are websites. Um, 
pick something, start with something, something that interests you, because once you have at least one thing to say, you're in the conversation. And the difference between having nothing to say and having something to say is the all-important difference. That's great advice. I hope all of you listening will uh, put it into practice. Dr. McGrew, thank you so much for coming on The God Solution. Thank you, Dr. McGrew. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, that concludes the second part of our interview with Dr. McGrew. I encourage you to pick up his wife's new book, Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts. In that book, she talks a lot about what we talked about today. You can find out more about Dr. McGrew at historicalapologetics.org, and you could go to Facebook and search Christian Apologetics Alliance. You might also pick up a book that he contributed to last year called Four Views on Christianity and Philosophy. Well, the evidence for God is compelling, and the reliability of the New Testament and the Gospels are as well. If you've never come to a point of putting your faith and your trust in Jesus, why wait another day? Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again. Please come into my life as Savior and Lord. I pray that you'll put your faith in him, that you'll believe in him today if you haven't already. Well, you can get this show and all of our past shows at godsolutionshow.com. And while you're there, leave us some comments or even partner with us by supporting this show and keeping it on the air. Well, thanks so much for listening. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. We'll talk to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.